Hello, beings, and welcome to part two of my podcast about Bouchot, Buddha Nature, Dogen's chapter on Buddha Nature. This podcast is supported by your kind donations. If you want to donate to keep this podcast going, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. And donate something. Uh, I offer this for free, but your donations are my only way of making a living, so I appreciate those very much. All right. I already introduced what this chapter is in the first part of this podcast, which is called Dogen's Dogen on Buddha Nature Part 1, I believe. So you can go there and listen to that and uh, find out what this is all about that I'm going to be talking about. So I'm going to dive right into it instead of uh, introducing it because I would like to say a lot in the comments, mainly because in the previous part, part one, I feel like my comments about it weren't very extensive. So I'm going to comment about part one and part two uh, at the end of reading this. So right now, a guy who looks just like me but is wearing a different shirt, for those of you listening on audio, you won't even notice, uh, is going to read you my paraphrase of part two of Dogen's Bouchot. Take it away, me in another shirt. When Zen Master Huineng, Daikon Eno in Japanese, and by the way, I decided to go with the Chinese names when I thought the Chinese names were more commonly known, and the Japanese names when I thought the Japanese names were more commonly known. The problem is that Zen Buddhism in Japan, that when they used the names of the Chinese masters, they tended to pronounce them in the Japanese form, and some of these became more well-known in America in the Japanese form, and some of them became more well-known in America in the Chinese form. I decided that Huineng was more well-known as a pronunciation than Daikon Eno, but there are other places where I switched, so sue me. <laughs> anyway, let's go on. When Zen Master Huineng, sorry, and I should pronounce it correctly, so I'll, I'll do that right now, <laughs> Huineng rather than Huineng. When Zen Master Huineng first met his teacher Zen Master Hongren, which is Daimon Konin in Japanese. Hongren asked Huineng, where are you from? Huineng said to his teacher-to-be, I'm from way down south. Hongren said, what do you hope to get by coming here? Huineng said, I want to become a Buddha. Hongren said, people from way down south have no Buddha nature. How do you expect to become a Buddha? The words, people from way down south have no Buddha nature, doesn't mean a person from down south has or does not have Buddha nature. They mean that a person from down south, being without, is Buddha nature. How do you expect to become a Buddha means what kind of becoming Buddha do you expect? Not many people have understood what Buddha nature is. The truth about Buddha nature is that before attaining the state of Buddha, Buddha nature cannot be completely expressed. After realizing Buddhahood, it is completely expressed. Buddha nature and realizing Buddhahood always experience each other simultaneously. We should consider this carefully by learning it in practice for 20 or 30 years. Not even many of the great bodhisattvas get it. To say living beings have Buddha nature, or to say living beings are without Buddha nature, is this truth. Learning in practice that Buddha nature is completely expressed only after attaining Buddhahood is the correct teaching. Any other teaching is not true.
If it hadn't been understood like this, the teachings of Buddha couldn't have reached us today. If we don't understand this, we don't understand Buddha's realization. This is why Hongren said, people from way down south, being without, are the Buddha nature. When we first start studying and practicing Buddhism, this teaching that living beings, being without, are Buddha nature, is rare to hear and hard to understand. It means that becoming a Buddha means getting free of what does not originally belong to us. We should be happy we were able to hear this teaching. Those who aren't satisfied when they see, hear, realize, and know that all beings, being without, are Buddha nature, haven't seen, heard, realized, or known Buddha nature. When Huinang wanted to become a Buddha, Hongren was able to make that happen just by saying nothing other than all beings, being without, are Buddha nature. These words are the direct path to Buddhahood. TLDR, at the very moment of being without Buddha nature, we become a Buddha right away. Those who haven't seen or heard the expression, all beings being without our Buddha nature, are not Buddhas. Zen Master Huinang said, People have north and south, but the Buddha nature has no north or south. This is an important expression. Try to get inside of his words. Think about the words north and south with your bare naked mind. One of the meanings of his words is, People become Buddhas, but Buddha nature can't become a Buddha. Did he know this? The Buddha and those in his lineage have realized the truth of the expression being without the Buddha nature. They have realized how things really are. They have the ability to express totally having the Buddha nature when they become Buddhas and preach the Dharma. The have of totally have receives the truth of being without expressed by the words being without. How could it be otherwise? Even today we can hear the words being without the Buddha nature echoing from the distant rooms of Master Huinang and Master Hongren. Master Huinang was an enlightened man. He should have set aside the being without of being without Buddha nature and asked Hongren, what is Buddha nature anyway? He should have asked, exactly what kind of a thing is this Buddha nature you're talking about? People today rarely ask what Buddha nature is. They just talk about whether it exists or not. They're getting ahead of themselves. TLDR. We need to study what people mean whenever they deny that something exists in light of the phrase being without Buddha nature. We should really try to understand this phrase, people have north and south, but the Buddha nature has no north or south. There may be something important in the questions this phrase brings up without even worrying about how they should be answered. Dummies think that what Huinang meant is, the human world has north and south because it's a physical place, but Buddha nature is the non-physical void, so there's no north and south. Those people are hopeless. Toss that kind of thinking in the trash and get on with real practice. Huinang said to his student Gyosho, Impermanence is Buddha nature. Permanence is the mind that divides stuff up into good and bad. Impermanence, as expressed by Huinang, goes way beyond impermanence as expressed by others. 
Those others may talk about impermanence, but they don't really know impermanence. When impermanence itself preaches and practices impermanence, then all is impermanence. Manifesting our own body, we preach and practice impermanence for the salvation of others. This is what Huineng meant when he said, impermanence is the Buddha nature. The Dharma body may be long or short. Everyday saints and everyday common people are impermanence itself. The idea that common people and saints can't be Buddha nature is a narrow-minded view based on the intellect. Buddha is a bit of body, nature is a bit of action. Therefore, Huineng says, impermanence is Buddha nature. Permanence means that which is unchanging. But because the reality of this present moment is disconnected from past and future, we can't really call it changing or unchanging. Nor is the wholeness of the universe divided into subject and object. TLDR, the impermanence of grass, trees, and forests is nothing other than Buddha nature. The impermanence of the bodies and minds of human beings is Buddha nature itself. Land, mountains, and rivers are impermanence and are, therefore, Buddha nature. Because it is Buddha nature, the truth of complete, perfect enlightenment is impermanence. The great state of total nirvana is impermanence, and because it's impermanence, it is Buddha nature. Small-minded people, as well as scholars and sutra teachers, might be surprised to hear Huineng's words about Buddha nature. That's because they don't have a clue in the world. There's an old story about Nagarjuna, who is regarded as the 14th Indian ancestor of Buddhism in the line of succession from Shakyamuni. In the story, Nagarjuna goes to southern India, where lots of people believe in doing special practices to bring good fortune. After Nagarjuna preached to these folks, some of them said things like, The most important thing is to do practices that bring good fortune. Why does this guy talk about Buddha nature? Nagarjuna said, if you want to realize Buddha nature, get rid of your selfish pride. Someone said, is Buddha nature big or small? Nagarjuna said, Buddha nature isn't big or small. It's not wide or narrow. It doesn't have happiness or sorrow. It doesn't need any rewards for good works. It doesn't die, and it was never born. Hearing this, the audience got it and they all came back to their original mind. Just then, while sitting, Nagarjuna manifested the form of the full moon. Those in the audience could hear him, but they couldn't see him. Just then, a rich man named Kanadeva, who later became Nagarjuna's successor, said, Do you guys know what this form is? The people in the audience said, this is something our eyes have never seen before, our minds have never known before, and our bodies have never experienced before. Kanadeva said, Nagarjuna is manifesting the form of Buddha nature to show us what it is. The formless state of deep meditation resembles the shape of the full moon. The meaning of Buddha nature is perfectly clear. Then the circle disappeared, and there was Nagarjuna sitting on his seat. He recited a poem that went, my body expresses a round full moon. It's the body of the Buddhas, that's right. In preaching the Dharma in which form has no room, I reveal what's beyond sound and sight. 
Remember that true activity is beyond the momentary manifestation of sounds and forms, and the real preaching of the Dharma doesn't have any set shape. This story is just one example of the many times Nagarjuna spoke about the Dharma. If you want to realize Buddha nature, get rid of your selfish pride, he said. We should really understand the meaning of this. He's not saying there's no realization. He's saying that getting rid of selfish pride is realization. There are many kinds of selfishness and many types of pride, and there are a lot of means to get rid of them. But these are all realization of Buddha nature. Even seeing things with your own eyeballs is a kind of realization. Nagarjuna says that Buddha nature is beyond big or small. Don't think of this the way common people think of it. Some people think that Buddha nature must be really huge, but that's a one-sided view. We should really think about the truth that is expressed in the statement that Buddha nature is beyond big or small. It's good that we can hear such a thing and consider it. But what about that poem? It says, My body expresses a round full moon. It's the body of Buddhas. That's right. Because his body has the actual means to express the body of the Buddhas, it is the roundness of the full moon. Reality has concrete attributes, but it is also wholeness that is beyond attributes. Those who are ignorant of the body and its expression don't know the roundness of the moon or the body of the Buddhas. Dummies think that round full moon means that Nagarjuna's body underwent some kind of magical transformation. Those who believe that have not understood the Buddha's truth. How could Nagarjuna have manifested a form other than his own body? Remember, we are told that this happened while he was sitting on his seat. His body looked just like anyone else's body. The very body he had was the roundness of the moon expressing itself. The body, just as it is, is beyond square or round, beyond existence or non-existence, beyond invisibility or visibility, and beyond all of the elements that constitute a body. It is just a human body being a human body. The round full moon is a way of referring to the ineffable quality of all things, no matter how they are described. The moon can be full, but it can also be a quarter moon or a crescent moon. Because the body manifesting itself must first get rid of selfish pride, it is not Nagarjuna's body. It is the body of the Buddhas. Because it expresses itself in a concrete way, it shows itself as the body of the Buddhas. It is beyond anything we may think of as Buddhas. Although Buddha nature is clear and resembles a full moon, that doesn't mean it's shaped like a circle. It is not limited to one form, nor can it be put into words. Real activity is beyond sounds and sights. It's beyond what we can see, and it is beyond what we can see. Real activity is beyond sounds and sights. It's beyond what we can see, and it is beyond what we can conceive of as being made up of molecules and atoms. Its appearance in the world we see before us, yet it expresses the body of the Buddhas. 
do that again. Its appearance is the world we see before us, yet it expresses the body of the Buddhas. It is the Dharma that has no set form. When that which has no set form becomes the formless state of deep meditation, or samadhi, it is a body manifesting itself. The reason everybody in that audience said Nagarjuna's form was something they'd never seen before is because it was the totality of Dharma preaching transforming the moment. It was beyond all sound and form. It wasn't some kind of weird happening. At that moment, the audience only heard the Dharma. They didn't see Nagarjuna's form. Only Nagarjuna's successor, Kanadeva, really understood this as the form of the full moon. This is because he knows real roundness, and he knows the nature of Buddhas and the nature of the bodies of Buddhas. Nobody understands this as well as Kanadeva did. He was a true master. He was the one to whom Nagarjuna transmitted the Dharma. Many flakes and fakes have claimed to be the heirs of this transmission, and lots of them have made commentaries on Nagarjuna's writings. Some have even made up their own stuff and claimed it to have been written by Nagarjuna. What a joke. Kanadeva said, Nagarjuna is manifesting the form of Buddha nature to show us what it is. The formless state of deep meditation resembles the shape of the full moon. The meaning of Buddha nature is perfectly clear. Only the great Kanadeva could say something as brilliant as this. Even so, lots of people have made paintings of this scene in which they depict Nagarjuna literally as a shiny round moon floating above the seat he was supposed to have been sitting on. This is so dumb you could did. This is so dumb you could die of laughter. These paintings don't express the true meaning of this story. In the summer of the year 1225, I was traveling around China, visiting Zen temples. At a place called Kori Zen Temple, they had a wall with paintings depicting the 33 ancestral masters of Indian Buddhism. Nagarjuna was depicted literally as a round, full moon. When I asked about this, nobody at the temple could understand why anyone would have any problem with this kind of painting. No one ever paints the round full moon as a human body just as it is. The Dharma can't be depicted, but if we try to depict it, we should depict it as it really is. Those who believe Buddha nature is thought or consciousness have no idea what having Buddha nature or being without Buddha nature mean. Some learn that they should never even speak about it. This is because they don't even make any effort to understand it. There are people who say that those who study the teachings can talk about Buddha nature, but that monks who practice Zen shouldn't talk about it. What a load of crap. What does that even mean? In real Buddhism, there's no such thing as studying the teachings as opposed to practicing Zen. There is no distinction between studying the teachings and practicing Zazen. And that's the end of part two.
Alright, so before I begin commenting on part two that you just heard, I'm going to start commenting about some of the things on part one that I feel like either I didn't say enough about or I didn't say anything at all about. So here we go. So there's a line in uh, right near the beginning that says, when Shakyamuni says all living beings, that's in quotes, he means everything there is, not just the kinds of beings we usually think of as living. In other words, total existence is Buddha nature, and we call that living beings. This is uh, an issue that hangs people up. Sometimes there's this uh, phrase, all living beings or living beings or sentient beings that you'll hear in translations of different Buddhist texts, uh, Nishijima Roshi's and other people's. And in this case, the word being translated is Shujo. And Shujo, it's usually defined as all living beings, or uh, it literally means masses of life, if you want to parse the two Chinese characters out. And it is often used as a translation of the concept of sattva in Hinduism, which is one of the three gunas. And this is very complicated, and it's uh, it's not really necessary to understand, but there's this idea that there's these three... I'm not sure a guna, exactly what sort of a thing a guna is, but you have three types that you can become sort of uh, enmeshed in, I suppose. And sattva is the good one, purity. Rajas is passion, and tamas is darkness, illusion, or ignorance. But that doesn't really apply to here. The point I'm trying to make is this idea of living beings. Dogen is deliberately saying that this includes everything. So everything is a living being, and this is an important concept in Buddhism. It's not the way we usually think of things, where we think rocks and uh, dirt are not living beings, or, or planets are not living beings, but uh, humans and dogs and, I don't know, grasshoppers are living beings. Uh, in the Buddhist way of thinking, and especially Dogen is emphasizing it here, living beings, this shujo refers to everything, a absolutely everything there is, air, molecules, the moon, everything. Another line I wanted to comment on a little bit is, this total existence which is totally possessed by Buddha nature is not like existence as contrasted with non-existence. This is another concept that comes up in Buddhism and it's, it's a difficult one because you are forced by language to say that something exists. If you want to talk about something, you're say, you say it exists. And he says the existence of Buddha nature here. And he's talking about total existence. But he's not talking about existence as contrasted with non-existence. Existence and non-existence are concept, concepts. But uh, this total existence he's talking about includes both existence and non-existence. I'm just going to leave it at that. I just want you to chew on that a little bit. I had to chew on it for a couple of decades before I got it, so I'll let you deal with that. Another line, which I believe I did mention in the first version of this, or in the first set of comments I did on this, um, on the part one of this podcast, I said, the universe, well, this is my Dogen paraphrase, uh, says, the entire universe doesn't have any dust that needs to be cleaned off. There's nobody here but you. Other translations of this, well, that wasn't a translation, but here's a, a translation. Nishijima and Cross give us, The whole universe is utterly without objective molecules. Here and now, there is no second person at all. And Nishiyama and Stevens give us, The entire world is free of dust, and here there can be no second person. 
Tanahashi and his co-translators give us, in the entire world there is no extra speck of dust, Buddha nature is immediate, and there is no second person. So they squeezed in a little thing about a Buddha nature being immediate that probably isn't there, but anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is that second person thing. I transliterated, transliterated? No, I didn't transliterate. I paraphrased it as there is nobody here but you. This is kind of a distillation of my own experience with this sort of thing, is coming to the understanding that there is nobody here but me. But when I say there's nobody here but me, this me, I'm using this funny word me to describe you as well out there sitting here listening to this or wherever you are listening to this uh, anybody is is also me to understand that everybody is the same me that I think of as my personal self that is what I believe Dogen is getting at here Another line I wanted to mention is, uh, but that doesn't mean that the universe you can perceive is the total existence I am talking about. This is one of the ways I feel that some people uh, get mistaken about Dogen's philosophy. Uh, I, I've noticed a tendency among some people to take Dogen as a materialist. I mean, we, we say he's not a materialist, but then when he talks about reality, there's a tendency to think reality means what I can see, hear, feel, smell, sense with my sense organs. And he emphasizes again, as he does many times, that what he's talking about when he talks about total existence is way beyond what you can see, feel, hear, smell, taste, touch, those kind of sensory experiences. It goes far beyond that. Now, here's uh, something a little bit juicier. And this is something I just figured out just before I, uh, yesterday when I was uh, preparing for this podcast. The line I give you in my version goes, Lots of people, when they hear the words Buddha nature, think it means something like an eternal soul. This is because they haven't met a true teacher and they haven't even met themselves. In the original, he makes a reference to... Seneca, or sometimes Shrenica, depending on whose version you read. And he's this non-Buddhist teacher who's the sort of Dogen's go-to guy for a guy who's almost got it but doesn't quite get it. Uh, basically, basically a Brahmanist. Uh, and so he's contrasting their view, the Brahmanistic view, with the Buddhist view. But here's the bit I just found out, because I said that in the last set of comments. The I'm not going to give you the other translations. You can go look at look at them yourselves. In the original, though, what I have as eternal soul and what I have as meet themselves are both words that would be translated as self. And the first one is waga or ware, and the second one is jiko. If you watch my video called Brain in a Jar is Buddhism Solipsism, I go into this, and if you want a visual, you'll be able to see it on screen, the Chinese characters. But this is something Dogen does a lot, and it's something I've personally only recently become more keenly aware of, is that this word self often appears in Dogen, but it's 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 sometimes ware and sometimes uh, Jiko. And I want to go into that a little bit more 
later on. All right. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> getting a little ahead of myself. But I want to go into that a little bit more later on. But Ware is more like what we think of as ego, the personal self. And Jiko is this kind of big self, if you want to uh, go with the Shunryu Suzuki's words. Uh, sometimes people, to try to make a difference between these two words that are translated as self, will put one uh, with a small s, which would be the Ware, the personal ego self, and a big S, which would be Jiko, the bigger self of the whole universe. And I'm going to circle back to that, but I want to go on for some other concepts. I have a line here that I've given you as, they think that the activity of their physical brains, this follows on from the line I just gave you, they think that the activity of their physical brains is enlightened knowing and enlightened understanding. These words, uh, enlightened knowing and enlightened understanding, uh, in other translations, let's see, Tanahashi just gives them as, a, as awareness and understanding, and uh, I'm not sure what, uh, what the other translation I have, but it's... Um, the words are kakuchi and kakuryo, okay? <laughs> so literally, en enlightened knowledge and enlightened understanding. And this kaku, the first character, is often the character used to represent satori. So satori is that big moment when you figure it all out. And in the Rinzai sect of Buddhism, uh, Zen Buddhism, the Satori experience is highly prized, but Dogen wasn't uh, all about that. And he even says, uh, but whoever said that Buddha nature includes enlightened knowing and enlightened understanding. So he's kind of saying this, this idea that there's going to be an enlightenment experience that's going to fix everything and, and make you perfect forever and ever. That's a kind of myth that a lot of people in Buddhism uh, tend to believe in and it's often used as a kind of bait to get you interested in Buddhism that you're going to have this experience of Satori in which you're going to get everything. Dogen wasn't about that and this is one of the places in which he talks about uh, Another one that I liked, the reflecting that Buddha is talking about, he's, that's that poem, reflect real time causes and circumstances is the line. The reflecting that the Buddha is talking about in this poem is not a subject that reflects an object or an object that is reflected. So that is an important point. This subject-object dichotomy is something that Dogen often talks about and he is saying that that's ultimately false. We tend to look at the world as if we are the subject observing the object, which is the world, the universe, whatever there is. But in fact, that's a false distinction. There is no subject-object distinction in reality. Chew on that one for a few decades and maybe you'll get it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm still working on it. Now there's a line that I really love, and I think I skipped this in the last set of comments I did on part one, so I just wanted to point it out to you. Uh, he says, even when I doubt it, uh, doubting the, the existence of Buddha nature or the reality or enlightened understanding, if we want to use one of those bad words, even when I doubt it, I leave that doubt just as it is. Doubt is the Buddha nature returning to me. So, as I've often said in my writings and things, uh, doubt isn't the enemy, necessarily. I mean, occasionally you get versions of uh, old sutras in which doubt is cast as the enemy, and you're supposed to go for full certainty. And that's a sort of a religious idea, is you're supposed to be totally certain of everything. 
in this form of Zen Buddhism, we don't emphasize being totally certain. Doubt is also part of the process, and doubt is, is a good thing. My first teacher, Tim McCarthy, used to say you need an equal amount of doubt and faith. So I love that line. And uh, here's another line I wanted to point out to you just to point it out. There has never been any moment that was not the moment having arrived, nor any Buddha nature other than the Buddha nature that's at this very place right now. So again and again, we get this idea that what we are aiming for is not something far away that's going to come after time has passed, but it's something that's immediate, that's right now, that we have even when we don't recognize that we have it. So there's never been a, a, any moment that was not the moment having arrived. This is a, a reference to that line in the poem about um, and when the moment arrives it seems Buddha nature stands before us and dances. Actually I added and dances to make it rhyme with circumstances but I figured you'd probably figure that out. But that's what he's talking about there. Oh, and here's uh, one that I think is funny, and I'm just mentioning it just to, I don't know, mention it in the way Buddhism is often taught by uh, Americans and, and uh, people who aren't reading it in the original language. I guess I shouldn't blame them, but it's one of the things that gets confusing. I made my trans... No, sorry, I keep saying trans... Uh, my paraphrase say... To look at Buddha nature is to look at a dog's nose or a cat's whiskers. What it actually says is a horse's, sorry, a, a, a donkey's jaw or a horse's nose or snout. Now, for reasons I cannot fathom, the Tanahashi translation has this as donkey's fins and horse's beak. Now, the horse's beak thing is actually what is written there. It says horse's beak. But I did, you know, not very much research on the internet. It took me about 10 minutes to figure this out, that that phrase horse's beak is just a kind of an old-fashioned Chinese way of talking about the nose of a horse. They called it a beak back then. And, and that's what that horse's beak thing means. It's not a reference to, like, well, I'll, I'll tell you what it's not in a minute. Why Tanahashi's translation says donkey's fins, I will never know. Because I looked at it and it clearly says donkey's jaw. So, so there you go. I don't know why. But the amusing thing I wanted to tell you is that I, when I was researching this, I came across an essay written by an American Buddhist teacher who's maybe not the most famous Buddhist teacher, but somebody of note, you know, somebody that people pay attention to. And he's writing about this, and he's obviously using the Tanahashi translation, and he goes into like a whole paragraph-long thing about the donkey's fins and the horse's beak, and how it's uh, Dogen referring to something that's unreal, you know, like a, don a donkey's fins or a horse's beak. The these are unreal things, and uh, blah, 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 and he just goes on and on. And... And it's just a mistranslation, but he's made this mistranslation and, and, and tried to turn it into a point and tried to, tried to uh, attribute that point to Dogen, and it's just not there. So, you know, be, be glad you're with me who at least knows a little bit of Japanese. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I, I just, things like that bug me when people don't, don't check that out and they're supposed to be the experts, but there you go. 
Here's another line I liked. This what, this ineffable something, is the state of Buddha. Even calling it what, or saying it cannot be described, is still limiting it to things that cannot be described as opposed to things that can be described. I love that, because Dogen is all about that. Uh, one person uh, I saw, a scholar of Dogen, described it as Dogen, Dogen rejects even the duality of duality as opposed to non-duality. So it, this is this is uh, the the extra step that Dogen goes that almost nobody else, even among Buddhists, goes is to say this. Even saying it cannot be described is is too limiting because it it assigns it to the category of things that cannot be described. So it can be described. <laughs> so, you know, it can and cannot. It's all weird Buddhisty stuff. And another line that I gave you as, in my paraphrase, I gave it as, but even when we're mistaken about it, it's still the Buddha nature exactly as it is. Another great Dogen line I just love. Another Dogen line I love is, when Buddha nature first decides to pursue the truth, is it without Buddha nature? So it's Buddha nature itself that pursues the truth. You yourself are Buddha nature. That's what he's saying. Now, let's get to part two. I spent a lot of time on part one. But part two. Uh, in the beginning of part two, we get that story of Zen Master Huineng and Hongren, he, who became his teacher, saying, where are you from? Huineng says, I'm from way down south. And there's all this stuff about Buddha nature not having north and south. This is a, a little reference to something that's this north-south rivalry that happened in Chinese Buddhism in ancient times. And I tell you what, I've learned and forgotten this historical stuff so many times I can't count. And it doesn't really matter that much, but I'm just going to tell you that the north was seen as these were the people who had a philosophy of gradual enlightenment and they were seen as being kind of corrupt and in the pockets of, of politicians and kings and stuff and the south was sort of seen as being more pure and genuine and their doctrine was sudden enlightenment and a lot of people i, I saw uh, allison tate who's a, a buddhist teacher up in seattle these days i think she's canadian she uh, gave a talk that I saw at Tassajara, and she pointed out that uh, a mistake that I'd been making for years, uh, and she said uh, herself she had made this mistake of thinking that gradual enlightenment was the Soto sect and sudden enlightenment was the Rinzai sect. And if you don't know what this is about, don't worry about it, but I'm just going to go on uh, for those of you who do know. In Rinzai uh, Zen Buddhism, there's this emphasis on Satori. I think I mentioned that earlier about 10 minutes ago, 5 minutes ago. And that's having a, a big enlightenment experience. And there's this emphasis of trying to get to that point quickly. Uh, whereas in Soto, they don't emphasize the enlightenment experience very much. And if you even are going to have the enlightenment experience, you're supposed to take it very slowly. So a lot of people, myself and apparently Allison, uh, thought, always thought that Soto was uh, gradual, whereas Rinzai was sudden. No, actually, Rinzai and Soto are both parts of the sudden enlightenment. Because even Soto, when they talk about the that experience of enlightenment, it's... I would liken it to kind of a roller coaster. It's like the roller coaster, you go up, 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 you hit the top, 
and then you're there for a second and go wee down so it's sudden there's a there's a sudden thing that happens when you go off the you know the the end of the the first hill of the of the roller coaster it's like that so you don't you don't it's it's gradual in the sense that there is a build up to it and it might take a long time but when it actually happens it's very quick so even the soto uh, school of zen buddhism admits to that so that's that so that's that north south stuff it doesn't really matter sorry to go on so long for something it doesn't really matter Another line which I have given you as Buddha nature cannot be completely expressed. I had a bear of a time with that because the word that Dogen actually uses is gusoku. And gusoku means fully equipped and it also can refer to a suit of armor. And in the Nishima Cross translation they say uh, Buddha nature cannot, we are not fully equipped with Buddha nature until we have attained the state of Buddha. Okay, that's the the line. I, I didn't know, to be honest, I, I think I understand what Dogen means when he says gusoku, completely equipped, and I decided to say, be able to express it. Um, but e equipped with it is, is more what he's saying. So we, it's not that we don't have it, but somehow we aren't equipped with it. You know, again, one of these Buddhist, what do we call it, contradictions. So let's keep moving on. I just wanted to point out something. I hope that I read it in a way that's understandable when I read this. There's a line, living beings being without our Buddha nature. So this is Dogen playing around with the order of Chinese characters and making a new phrase out of it. So he's, he's trying to say living beings are without Buddha nature, but when you rearrange the characters you get something that when translated into English would mean something more like living beings being without so living beings when they are without are Buddha nature and when see any way you try to phrase it in English it becomes gobbledygook because when I say when they are without that would imply that there's a there's a, a, a time that they are with and a time that they are without and that's not what I mean to say so our withoutness, our, our emptiness of anything is our Buddha nature. And another line I love, because this came from Nishima Roshi's footnotes, and I, I just stuck it in and I put it in Dogen's own words. Dogen says something, now I've forgotten exactly what he says, but he says something that's really hard to follow, and then the footnote that Nishima Roshi gives us is becoming a Buddha means getting free of what does not originally belong to us. So I, I really like that. It's, it's one of those lines that I probably would have had a hard time understanding the first time I heard it. I'm sure I did have a hard time understanding it the first time I heard it, but I think it's an important sort of concept that getting free of what does not originally belong to us is just kind of letting go of various opinions and ideas and notions of who we are and so forth those don't belong to us and originally we nothing belongs to us so when we get rid of everything that doesn't belong to us we have um, we become a buddha doesn't necessarily mean you get rid of your car and your record collection and, and your motorcycle or well, I don't know what you have but you know whatever you have it's not exactly that kind of an idea it's more of a letting go of it conceptually 
let's see. Well, we already talked about the north-south thing, so I want to give you a couple of lines that refer to that without having to give you the historical background. Huenang said, People have north and south, but the Buddha nature has no north or south. And Dogen says, Dummies think that what Huenang meant is the human world has north and south because it's a physical place, but Buddha nature is the non-physical void, so there is no north and south. Those people are hopeless. Toss that kind of thinking in the trash and get on with real practice. So that is a mistake that a lot of people make, is to think that Buddha nature is this kind of spiritual something that is void, that is different from this material world we find ourselves in. But Dogen is saying that even this material world we find ourselves in, though it is an illusion, is an expression of the same Buddha nature. So it's not that Buddha nature is some pure thing that's beyond the world we're in, it's the world we're in is an expression of this same pure Buddha nature. That's his point there, which I like. Uh, also, he says uh, that uh, Dogen says that Huenang should have set aside the being without of being without Buddha nature and asked Hongren, what is Buddha nature anyway? And that's what he's trying to do in this chapter. He's in his day, there was a lot of fussing and fighting over whether people had Buddha nature or not without people examining what was meant by the idea of Buddha nature anyway. And that, I think, is interesting. Now we come up with another concept that throws people a lot. Let's see. Huenang said to his student, impermanence is Buddha nature. Permanence is is the mind that divides stuff up into good and bad. And impermanence is mujo, which Nishijima and Cross translate as that without consistency. And permanence is ujo, which they translate as that which has consistency. Uh, impermanence is one of these difficult concepts, and I'm not going to try to explain all of impermanence here. I just want you to pay attention when the next time you try to read Dogen about impermanence, because he says things like this. Uh, impermanence, as expressed by Huenang, goes way beyond impermanence, in quotes, as expressed by others, as, as something contrasted with permanence. And even though he's contrasting it with permanence, this is the problem. You have to be contradictory. When impermanence itself preaches and practices impermanence, then all is impermanence. I, I just love that line. And here's another bit I think I should point out. He, this I took right from the Nishijima Cross translation. I, I might have altered a word or two, but basically this is what they have. Buddha is a bit of body. Nature is a bit of action. And nature here, Nishijima Roshi points out in his footnotes, Sometimes people think it means an essence in an abstract sense, but Nishima Roshi points out that it means the natural state or function. So what we, so when he's talking about busho, Buddha nature, he's not talking about some original essence that you know we have to dig around to find. He's talking about our natural state, our natural function. And here's another line. Because the reality of this present moment is disconnected from past and future, we can't really call it changing or unchanging. This is more Nishijima Roshi's way of phrasing things than it is Dogen's. Dogen does talk about this idea, so I'm not going to say he doesn't. But Nishijima Roshi had, had liked to use the metaphor of a film, 
you know, and, and a film is a series of still pictures projected on a screen, and each one, when they're together, forms a screen. And he would say that's a metaphor of what reality is actually like. The present moment is cut off from the past and the future the same way as one frame of a film is cut off from the frame before it and the frame after it. It's an interesting concept, because he's saying there's only this present moment. When he says the present moment is cut off from past and future, I think that's kind of obvious. We can't go into our past. We can't go into our future like Doctor Who, you know. We go into our future by waiting for it to happen, I suppose. But but um, he's saying that, that past and, and future are cut off. And he would also say that every action we take is carved into the universe. This was a big point I made in my book, Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, which I originally wanted to call Carved into the Universe, but the publishers didn't like that title, so we didn't use it. But it does come up in the book. But Nishijima Roshi talked about how everything we do is carved into the universe, meaning it can't be changed. It's there forever. So that's one reason why we should be very, very careful about our actions. Uh, let's see. Well, here's another line that is good. The impermanence of grass, trees, and forests is nothing other than the Buddha nature. The impermanence of the bodies and minds of human beings is Buddha nature itself. Land, he actually says national lands, but I just said land. Land, mountains, and rivers are impermanence and therefore Buddha nature. Because it is Buddha nature, the truth of complete perfect enlightenment is impermanence. The great state of total nirvana is impermanence, and because it is impermanence, it is Buddha nature. Uh, this is another section where Dogen is taking some Chinese characters and changing the order of them to make them into new sentences and occasionally adding a word or two. Uh, it's something he does a lot, but the impermanence he's talking about is the impermanence we see everywhere. So anything you see is impermanence. You know, things, we think of things as permanent. We think of, I don't know, the Statue of Liberty, or how about the pyramids? Those are good. You know, they've been there for 5,000 years or something, or maybe, you know, since the aliens <laughs> built them, if you watch ancient aliens. But anyway, they've been there for a long time. We tend to think of them as permanent. But even the pyramids are not permanent. Someday they'll be completely gone. Even the earth itself is impermanent. So that's impermanence, and impermanence is everything. Now, this is the bit that I spent the most time on uh, studying because I got kind of stuck on it. Nagarjuna said, this is uh, quoted by Dogen, and just about every translation more or less agrees on this, if you want to realize Buddha nature, get rid of your selfish pride. Now, break free of self is what uh, Nishiyama Stevens has, and Tanahashi uh, has let go of pride. The actual word that Dogen uses is gaman. In modern Japanese, gaman means endurance or, or patience or self-control. If you're, if you're going through, um, I don't know, if somebody's squeezing a pimple for you, sorry for a gross uh, example, but it's the only, it's the first thing that comes to mind. They might say gaman, gaman, like, like, you know, endure, endure until this is over. That's gaman, you know, that's, that's what it means in contemporary Japanese. That's not the way Dogen is using it. It's actually two, two Chinese characters, which means self, and it's that waga self, the ego self, and uh, that's ga, uh, ga, and man is pride. So selfish pride is a good translation. Now, 
there is a footnote in the Japanese, the contemporary Japanese version of Shobo Genzo that Nishijima Roshi put out before he did the English version. And I really wish this was in the English version because this is so helpful, uh, but it's not in the English version. And let me see if I can read you it in Japanese just in case any of you speak Japanese and you can double check me on my translation. He says, Jiko no chushin ni ware ga aru kangai. He says that, that this, this selfish pride, he's saying what this means, this gaman means, is Jiko no chushin ni ware ga aru kangai. An idea that within the self, with a big S, is something called ware. I, ego, me, that sits at the center of it. Chushin means center. So in the center, it's the belief that in the center of the self is an ego self. That's that's what is the center of it. And sono waga o yori dokoro toshite kokoro no kyomon de arukoto. So, uh, and the gaman means the, the pride that we have in our hearts a kind of arrogance uh, that, uh, based on this waga, this ware, this personal individual ego self. So this is again, he's contrasting this idea of jiko self with waga self or ware self, and he says it's a translation. This is what he says in the footnotes. It's a translation, a Chinese translation. Gaman is of a Sanskrit concept, atmamana. And I looked that up, and it says regarding oneself as you know whatever, regarding oneself as great, one regarding oneself as, as as stupid. You know, sometimes having a low view of yourself is also a way to build up your ego because your ego must exist if your ego is a piece of crap. You know, if you if I if I say I'm a terrible person, well, I'm I'm affirming myself again there. So it's not. So the pride he's talking about isn't necessarily pride in the sense of a positive feeling about yourself. It can also be pride in the sense of a negative feeling about yourself. So that was my favorite part, and I'm glad you let me indulge myself in that. Now, we get this whole business about Nagarjuna manifesting himself as the form of the full moon. And this is a weird story, and his point, Dogen's point, is uh, expressed this way. This is how I, I uh, paraphrased it. Dummies think that the round full moon means that Nagarjuna's body underwent some kind of magical transformation. Those who believe that have not understood the Buddha's truth. How could Nagarjuna have manifested a form other than his own body? Remember, we are told that this happened while he was sitting on his seat. His body looked just like anyone else's body. That is me trying to put into as short a paragraph as I can something that Dogen spends like three pages on. He was really, really... He felt it was really, really important for his audience to understand that Nagarjuna, when it says Nagarjuna manifested himself as the full moon, he was just sitting there, just being Nagarjuna, just being, you know, whatever he looked like as a person. And that this that this idea of him magically transforming into a full moon is nonsense. And he just goes on and on and on about it. I took I, I took a lot of that away because I think for us 
these days we most of us probably understand it. Maybe maybe some of us don't, but perhaps um, among Dogen's audience were people who would have been impressed by stories of magical transformations like that. So maybe that's why he goes on and on and on. But he really, if you think I go on and on in my version of it, you should see what Dogen does. Uh, and then the last part I want to point out is he says at the very end of part two of this essay, uh, there is no distinction between studying the teachings and practicing zazen. That is also something that Dogen thinks is important. Of course, you can practice zazen without necessarily studying the teachings in a formal way. That's perfectly all right to do. In fact, Nishijima was a big fan of people doing that. But he would say if you want to study the teachings as opposed to practicing zazen. So we make the distinction and then we say that the distinction is false. That's part of this contradictory way that Dogen expresses himself and that we have to express ourselves when we're talking about Dogen. So if you want to study Buddhism as opposed to sitting zazen, you should have a teacher. That's what Nishijima Roshi used to say. Uh, Dogen makes it sound like you have to have a teacher to do either, but Nishijima Roshi liked to say that it didn't matter so much about just practicing zazen, but when you study Buddhism, you should have a teacher. Maybe he's talking about the intellectual side needs some kind of explanation, but if you want to just sit on your own, there's not really a difficulty in that. But ultimately, even the sitting zazen is a way of studying the teachings because you learn all of the teachings are a footnote to zazen. This was uh, Kodo Sawaki, uh, who was Nishijima Roshi's teacher, was fond of saying that. So all of, all of the teachings of Buddhism are a footnote to zazen. So the best way to study Buddhism is to actually just do zazen. But it helps to have a teacher because sometimes you can get a little uh, screwy. So there you go. That is my long, long, long set of comments on part one and part two of Busho Buddha Nature. I will try to have part three ready for you in about a week. Let's hope for the best. Let's see if we can do that. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Remember, if you want to donate, you go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate, and you will find my Patreon and PayPal links. Those are my only way of making a living these days, so I really appreciate your support. But as always, this is offered for free, so you don't have to donate if you don't want to donate. So there you go. Thank you very much. And as I keep saying on my videos, I should come up with a special ending for the podcast that's different. But for now, I'm going to say what I say on the videos, which is have a good time all the time, which is a line from Spinal Tap. I think it's the very last line in the movie. This is Spinal Tap. Great movie if you want to watch it. So we will see you later. Bye-bye. Uh,